Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the biggest political stories developing all week since the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the fact that President Trump is going to nominate and most likely get confirmed by the Senate his third Supreme Court justice all in his first term. This would push the court to be the most conservative it has been since 1950. And depending on the outcome of the election, it could set up fights between the branches of government. For more on the Supreme Court's ideological shift, we'll speak to Michael Bailey, professor at Georgetown University. You know, one of the ways that we try to figure out how conservative or liberal the court is, is we look at their voting patterns and uh, compare their voting patterns over time. And so it's actually pretty complicated to do because they're voting on different issues today than they were voting on in 1990 or 1973. So what we've done is we've taken not only the voting patterns of the justices on the cases that they see, but we've also taken instances where they take positions on cases that were happened before previous courts. So Justice Thomas, for example, has been fairly outspoken in saying Roe v. Wade, which was decided in 1973, well before he was on the court, but he's been quite outspoken in you know, stating his conservative position on that. So we kind of throw that into the mix, and that at least gives us some leverage to be able to talk not only about who's more liberal or conservative today, but who's more liberal or conservative over time. And when we do that, what we see, it's really quite striking, is, you know, this thing has moved over time or where the court is. And we think about the middle of the court, the median of the court, that's going to be the decisive vote on a typical case. And today on the current court, or I guess when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still on the court, Chief Justice Roberts was the median, meaning he was in the middle between four people to his left and four people to his right. But now, if, as you said, uh, President Trump succeeds in nominating someone who is almost certainly going to be very conservative to the court, the median, the middle member, the decisive member of the court, they're going to be to the right of anyone we've seen since 1950, which is really quite striking. And we've seen a lot of decisions that come down five to four. We've seen a ton in these past few rulings that we've gotten the past few years. That's going to be a lot less likely now. As you mentioned, you just needed kind of that median judge to cross over on one side or the other to make that final determination. But now there's going to be two extra on the liberal side. They would have to win over two extra judges just to get a majority decision there. So that's going to be a lot tougher. I don't know that we'll see six to three decisions. I mean, of course we will, but I'm not sure that every decision will be six to three. But what will happen is it's just the conservatives have that much more uh, room to give. Really striking in the, in the recent term, the Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Roberts, they're all pretty conservative individuals. And yet there was quite a number of fairly liberal decisions. And the reason right. that happened was this time it was Roberts. He went over to the liberals on abortion. This time it was Gorsuch on Native American issues. This time it was Kavanaugh on something else. And so the liberals did okay. In fact, on high-profile sexual identity type issues, liberals have generally done quite well. But now, liberals can't count on just getting lucky, as it were, to find one conservative who, on whatever you know particular specifics of a case, seems to be drawn to the liberal side. Now they got to get two, and that becomes a much, much harder uh, task for them. And there's going to be a lot of very hotly contested issues, you know, abortion. A lot of people are talking about that. Things with elections, labor laws, health care will probably come up again. Government regulation. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be coming up, and the ideological gap is going to change depending on 
who wins the presidency. It seems like the Democrats will retain control of the House, but what about the Senate? And all this is going to do is just set up a lot of different fights between the branches of government. Yeah, and that's really something that's coming down. And, and uh, again, it depends on the election. You know, if President Trump is re-election and the Republicans continue to have the Senate, then we would have a kind of ordinary situation where, you know, the court is, yeah, they're kind of out of whack, uh, out of line, as it were, with one of the chambers of Congress or one of the institutions of government. But they've got another one or more institutions who kind of cover them. But if we have a situation which, you know, I would say is certainly 50 percent probability at this point, Democrats controlling the House, Senate and presidency, then we would have the biggest gap between the, the Supreme Court and the elected branches. And the thing about that, one, as you said, is it creates conflict. But two, it creates conflict in a way that's really hard to predict, but quite interesting and probably asymmetric. So the famous thing about the Supreme Court was the people, especially at the uh, founding of the nation, was they were just saying, court has no power. Whose army does the, the Supreme Court control? Nothing. Right. And so typically they haven't needed so much power because they've had at least one elected branch to be their representative, as it were, you know, among the more powerful institutions. But you well could imagine a situation where, again, <laughs> everything is lined up against the court. So as much as conservatives have been really celebrating the power that they do get from essentially controlling the court, then it suddenly turns to that power needs to be respected by the elected branches. And we've already seen, by the way, we've seen President Trump, he just ignores subpoenas and he ignores, you know, some things that are part of the judicial process and there's been no consequences, right? And so now what if the elected branches with this big gap start to do things that could undermine the respect for the court? Yeah, I mean, there's so much going on and regardless of what side of the political aisle you're on, all of this just makes this election that much more consequential. So we'll have to see how that turns out. We'll have to see if the nominee gets approved, which it, it seems like it could, whether uh, before the election or in the lame duck session. There's a lot going on, so we'll have to keep watching out for it. Michael Bailey, professor at Georgetown University, where he directs the McCourt School's Massive Data Institute. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Another story this week that had a huge development. A grand jury in Kentucky has charged former Louisville police officer Brett Hankison with three counts of wanton endangerment in the case of Breonna Taylor, who was killed by police fire in March. The charges were related to other circumstances and not directly related to the death of Breonna herself. Other officers involved in the incident were also not charged. For these latest developments in the Breonna Taylor case, we'll speak to Marissa Ayati, national reporter for The Washington Post. So the grand jury indicted one of the three officers who fired their weapons that night. It was Officer Brett Hankison, and they indicted him on three charges of wanton endangerment. And that is for shots that went into a neighboring apartment, not for shots that struck Taylor. So Attorney General Daniel Cameron said that he does not believe any of Hankison's shots hit Taylor directly, that those shots came from the other two officers on scene. Miles Cosgrove and Jonathan Mattingly. But he says that those officers were justified in firing their guns because Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, shot first. So Kenneth Walker has said that he did not know that the police were law enforcement when they arrived, that he thought that they were intruders, and he fired one shot, hitting one of the officers in the leg. The attorney general described it as tragic, but not a crime because they were fired on first. I guess an FBI crime lab did investigate and determined that Detective Miles Cosgrove was the one that fired the shot that killed Taylor. But as we mentioned, because they were firing back in self-defense, 
there's not going to be any charges brought there. What do we know about the boyfriend of Breonna Taylor? Because he said that he didn't hear the officers identify themselves. He thought they were intruders. That's why he fired the shot. But I guess there was a witness that came forward saying that they did hear the officers identify themselves. So whether or not officers identify themselves is still in dispute. The officers obtained a no-knock warrant, which means that they legally did not have to announce themselves. But Attorney General Cameron said today they did, in fact, announce themselves anyway. And he's basing that on statements from the officers themselves, as well as from one witness. A reporter at the press conference brought up the fact that several news outlets have talked with other neighbors and have found very few, possibly only one, witness who said that they did hear an announcement, that many others have said that there wasn't one. And Attorney General Cameron essentially said that the one witness saying that they heard something was sufficient for the grand jury to believe that an announcement was made. The charges is a felony punishable by fines and up to five years in prison in Kentucky. So there's three charges, possibility of up to 15 years for Officer Brett Hankison. We'll see how that ends up going. But the attorney general did say that he doesn't think there will be any more charges brought in this case. So he does not expect to bring any more criminal charges. But it is important to remember that the FBI is also investigating this case and they're looking at it through a lens of potential civil rights violations. So they could take action on their end or bring federal charges. But in terms of attorney general Cameron and state level prosecution, it it sounds like he has closed the door on that. In the past week, Breonna Taylor's family did settle a wrongful death lawsuit against Louisville for $12 million. There was also going to be some police reforms included in all of that. What what do we know about that? There are a few reforms that are specific to how search warrants are carried out, like the fact that police commanders now have to approve all warrants before they go to a judge for approval, and there is a rule about at least two officers having body cameras turned on when they are counting money that has been seized during an investigation. There's some other elements that are not directly related to search warrants, like officers getting paid time to do community service and getting incentives to live in certain low-income areas of Louisville, things that the city and Taylor's family presumably believe will strengthen trust between city residents and the department. Going back to Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, what do we know about why they were obtaining that warrant? My understanding is that they didn't really find any drugs that were being trafficked or anything like that in the apartment. The gun that he owned was legally obtained. What do we know about what happened to him? Police were at Breonna Taylor's apartment that night because they say they believed that she was connected to drug activity being conducted by her ex-boyfriend. So not the person she was living with, not the person who fired at officers, but somebody else entirely who lived elsewhere. And her boyfriend, who she lived with, Kenneth Walker, he did not have any criminal charges. He owned the gun legally, and he says that he fired at officers because he believed that they were intruders. So, I mean, the way the grand jury and the attorney general seem to position all of this, Breonna Taylor just caught in the crossfire, unfortunately. Where do we go from here? Because the Louisville mayor, Greg Fisher, declared a state of emergency there. He issued a curfew starting at 9 p.m. That goes until 6.30 a.m. for the next few days. Obviously, we've already seen some protests gathered. We're going to see if anything comes out of any of the protests or anything like that, but What other recourses do the family have at this point? The 
family and protesters could continue pushing the Louisville Police Department to fire the other two officers who shot their weapons that night, the two that are still on staff, Officers Cosgrove and Mattingly. There have also been calls to look into or potentially discipline the officers who were involved in obtaining the search warrant for the apartment. So I think that those could potentially be the next direction of of protesters, but I think that also just remains to be seen. Well, we'll keep monitoring this and and see what comes of all of it. Marissa Ayati, national reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Sure, thank you. We're constantly getting updates on a possible coronavirus vaccine. And while one might be on its way soon, that doesn't mean that people are ready to take it. According to an Axios-Ipsos poll, 60% of people say they don't want to take a first-generation vaccine, in part because of how it's been politicized. My thought bubble is, if no one wants to take a vaccine, how much longer will that delay a full reopening of the country? For more on how resistance to taking a COVID vaccine is growing, we'll speak to Margaret Talev, politics and White House editor at Axios. We have been measuring since March people's attitudes towards the pandemic and how it's been impacting them. And this is everything from like, how's your mental health to are you going out to eat? And more recently, we've been including some questions about the vaccine or the promise of a vaccine. And what we've seen is over the course of the past month, a dramatic and consistent and pretty unmistakable decline. We asked several questions, but I think the most important one is, are you likely to take a first-generation version of the COVID-19 vaccine as soon as it becomes available? And we've seen across the board, overall, a decline from the mid-40s now to 39% of Americans saying they'd be willing to take it. But look at this, a really steep decline among Democrats from the mid-50s down to 43%. And a decline among Republicans from the low to mid 40s down to 33 percent. So a really consistent decline across party lines. And this is important for a couple of reasons. One, Democrats and Republicans almost never behave the same way about anything to do with the coronavirus. And we've seen this like month after month after month. If there's a split, the most clear split is almost always likely to be along partisan lines. But the other is a very interesting cross trend. There's another number that we haven't mentioned yet, and it's independence. If you were an independent, you were around 45% likely to say you would take this first-generation vaccine as soon as it's available, as of late August, a month ago. Now, that number has barely declined at all, from 45% to 43%. So Democrats, independents, and Republicans are all at about the same place right now, less than half willing to touch a first-generation vaccine when it becomes available. But the independents have barely moved at all. And we asked ourselves in our pollsters, why? Why would that be true? And the best conclusion that we have at this point, and we'll have data to follow up on this in the weeks to come, but at this point, it looks like it's largely politically driven. Yes, there are some scientific concerns, uh, scientists warning, let's be patient, you know, we don't want to rush things. But it's really that it's been politicized. If you look at what else has happened over the same period of a month, it's that President Trump right at the end of the convention, began putting out this idea that a vaccine could be ready before the end of the year. And as the days went on, he began to say it could even be ready before the election. Then there was a pushback. Scientists, public health officials saying, no way, no way is the vaccine going to be in the American public's hands and probably not even ready, ready before the end of the year, much less before the election. And that is precisely the period of time where we have seen people's interest in being the guinea pigs on this decline. And we have so much news around the vaccine and development 
all that happened, what you just described, and then at the same time, AstraZeneca put a hold on their thing because there might have been some adverse effects. So people are hearing all this stuff and, you know, they're like, want to pump the brakes on it. My question is, I'm looking at it as far as people want to reopen, people want to get back to it. But these people that don't want to get these first generation vaccines, all that is, is going to put delays and delays and delays on things. So, you know, it's already going to be a few months after a vaccine is approved before it can get out to the general public, let's say. So everything just kind of pushes things down the line. It it makes me question, are people more comfortable just getting coronavirus naturally and going through it than going through the vaccine route? You know, it, it gets very confusing. That is a behavioral question that's completely unbounded by science. What we know is that when people actually get it or when people have proximity to someone who got it, much less someone who became very ill or died, their understanding of the disease really changes, right? Or the virus really changes. It's one thing to think about it in the abstract. Oh, it's just like the flu. It's not that big a deal. It's another thing if you have, you know, had a loved one be on a ventilator or recover and survive and then not be the same like for months again. And so this is happening as our children are going back to school or learning remote. Everyone knows who has a kid that learning a remote is kind of a disaster, but it's like the best you can do. If your kid goes back to school, our poll found a third of the people whose kids had returned to school already have had reports like within a couple of weeks of COVID illness or scares inside their school district. And so we know that mask use is really important for reducing um, your susceptibility or your ability to spread it, right? We know that. But from a political perspective, the president has sent such mixed messaging on masks that he has really shifted to a vaccine message. And this notion that just trust me, like, you know, we'll get through the election and by then there will be a vaccine. And what we see is that people are not treating the vaccine like it's a silver bullet. Like between a quarter and a third of the people in our survey said they didn't even want to take it at all. Forget about how quickly. They just don't want to take it. That's not the majority, but it's an important number if you're looking for anything approximating the sort of herd immunity that people have talked about. So if you can't inoculate enough people, what would be the impact on society? But beyond that, it's these two trends that you talked about. On the one hand, everybody wants to get back to, quote, normal life. And on the other hand, there are real scientific barriers that are going to slow that moment when we can get back to normal. And then beyond there is a real question of public trust. How do you get enough of the public? And people are resistant to the idea of taking vaccines for very different reasons. If you actually unpack some of these cross currents, you might not trust vaccines in general. You might not trust pharmaceutical companies. You might not trust President Trump. And you liked the idea of the vaccine until he said it's going to be ready. And then now you're like, oh, I don't want it. Or the other way around. You may put a great deal of trust in what President Trump says and be more likely to take a vaccine if he says that it's safe. And so we know that the numbers add up to a situation of real uncertainty if you are a government official or a public health official and you want science and reason and consensus to guide the day. But after that, that's about all we know. Everybody wants it to end, but nobody's clear on how to get there or what to do for it. But I mean, you know, we'll see once the vaccine gets approved and then we'll go from there and we'll see how many people actually do come to the table and, and, and get the vaccine. Margaret Talev, politics and White House editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it so much. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.